Welcome to Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday, or in this case, current dilemmas. We offer insights and perspectives on sticky situations to help you analyze your choices and exercise your own ethical muscles. I'm your host, Marna Ashburn, and I'm joined today by wife, mother, and attorney, Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman. Good morning, Kelly. Hi, Marna. Hi, Mike. Hi, everybody. And Mike Derrick, a retired Army officer, combat vet, and father of four. Hi, Mike. Good morning, Marna, and good morning, Kelly, and I'd like to say good morning to all of our listeners. Yes, good morning, listeners. The month of May brought us two things I never thought I'd see. The first was a Supreme Court leak of a draft decision, something I've never heard of happening in the history of the court. The complete draft in a case of public significance. Chief Justice Roberts called it a singular and egregious breach of the exemplary and important tradition of respecting the confidentiality of the judicial process, unquote. The second is what the majority decision was in favor of, overturning Roe v. Wade. The 1973 landmark decision in which the court ruled that the Constitution of the United States protects a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. This was precedent in my mind and would never be overturned. And it hasn't been overturned, but it's shocking to see how close we are to that. In any case, back to the original shock, the leak of the draft decision written by Justice Alito. Somehow it made its way into the hands of a reporter for Politico, where it was published in its entirety. So, Kelly, this leak by someone in the court strikes me as a serious betrayal and violation in an atmosphere, Supreme Court deliberations, which requires a lot of trust. There are nine justices, each with four clerks and various admin personnel, and they all process a lot of sensitive information. So A, you're a lawyer, you've clerked for a judge. What's your reaction to the actual breach? Is it serious? Yes, it's very serious. Uh, basically, there are, there are two obligations uh, that a clerk has. The first is basically to keep their obligation of confidentiality as far as sensitive information is concerned. They're really in a position of trust, and part of the reason they've been hired, they've gone through a very rigorous interview process. They are the absolute cream of the crop. Uh, most Most Supreme Court clerks have, you know, they're three or four years out of law school. They've had other clerkships. They've clerked either for a federal United States District Court judge or um, one of the circuit judges, like the Fourth Circuit, the Third Circuit. They've clerked there, and then they've been hired by the United States Supreme Court. So they are, and also they are at the very top of their class, probably, you know, number one or number two in their class. Law review, all the best internships. They're just You can't imagine how bright and special they are. Most Supreme Court justices were clerks for Supreme Court judges or justices. Most Supreme Court justices, um, clerks go on to stellar, lucrative careers. So these are, you know, sort of like the Michael Jordan of (laughs) of law. Top of the top. Yeah, they really are. And so they have this important special relationship of trust, and that's why they've been hired. But they also have a contractual relationship of trust because they sign non-disclosure or confidentiality agreements. I don't know what they say or what the terms and conditions of those agreements are. I don't know that that's ever been made public. But, you know, they so they have a, you know, they have a two-pronged kind of obligation 
one is contractual in law, and then the other is what I think we would say in our podcast, ethical. Um, and so, and then you look at kind of two different, I think you can look at it two different ways. One is when you're an employee, you do have some ethical obligations to your employer. But then when you're an employee at the Supreme Court, uh, you know, wow, you're really in a position of trust. Um, and you you really have to comply uh, with your obligations. And as an attorney, you have obligations of confidentiality under the ABA models, model rules of professional conduct, which most states have adopted. And then in addition, there's an ABA model code of judicial conduct. So there are these layers of obligations. So I hope that's answered your question, Marna. Yes, and we should say we don't know that a Supreme Court clerk leaked it. Right. I think all the evidence seems to indicate it probably was a clerk, but we don't know. Okay. And Supreme Court clerks, that's their second clerkship? Often, not always, but often, I would say probably 80-90% of the time, it's their second or third clerkship. And they've had prior federal clerkships, which are considered more prestigious and more difficult to obtain. So they have a track record of being trustworthy and a track record of good clerkship. Right. And in addition, they would have very high marks in law school. They would have been on law review. They would have had pristine recommendations. They would really have to be a remarkable individual to be hired into that position. And three to four years out of law school, not a fresh green, freshly out of law school. Correct. Okay, interesting. Thanks for that background. Mike, did you have any questions for Kelly on that? I hear what you're saying, Kelly, and I think everything you said relies on the assumption that the court is functioning as it was designed in the Constitution. Um, you know, it's designed to be insulated from politics. It's uh, designed to have justices who are answerable to no one, lifetime tenure, and, you know, all the things that we're familiar with. And I'm not a I'm not a historian of the Supreme Court, so I'm sure I'll get a lot of feedback on this. But it seems to me that given that this leak was on this topic, which is the most politically explosive topic we've seen go through the Supreme Court in in at least 50 years, it seems to me that can't be a coincidence. And so you talk about it being leaked by a clerk. Um, Again, I'm not familiar with the details of the ongoing investigation, but there's also a lot of speculation that it may have been a justice, someone who had access to the complete draft opinion. It wasn't just a few excerpts, folks. This was the whole darn thing. The complete thing. Yeah, Yeah. scanned. And and that has never happened before. There have been leaks. But, yeah. but not a complete draft opinion. But sorry, so, go ahead. So, you know, we're, we're moving forward here under this, I think, uh, assumption that the court is what it is currently what it was always designed to be. And I, I guess I have to take issue with that. I mean, the court, unfortunately, has been politicized. Recent justices, both on the Democratic and Republican side, seem to have been carefully vetted for their underlying opinion on this very topic. And so when this very topic comes before the Supreme Court, oh, by the way, look what happens. It gets leaked to the general public while it's still in draft form. That gives the the American polity and media the chance to chew on it for months. So was it somebody in favor of this decision as reflected in the draft opinion, or was it somebody against? 
again, there's a lot of debate on well, both sides. There I'm, are theories I'm, that yeah. support both. To me, it's it's just it's so deeply disturbing because this was the branch of government that was supposed to be the stopgap, that was supposed to be the one that was going to see us through over the long haul and uh, was not subject to the winds of political change as the other two branches of government are. And, you know, I'm just not feeling really good about it right now. Yeah, it's um, disturbing. And yeah, I noticed in my research disturbing. that Supreme Court justices are also, all often they have the modifier before their name, the Republican appointed such and such or the Democrat appointed such and such. Yeah, but it's right. but it's always been that way, right? The mm-hmm. the president in power has always been able to appoint who he wants, who he chooses, and consequently it's always been someone, you know, that the president felt would reflect his values and his politics ultimately uh the difference was or has been that once the president appointed this person they went before the senate for advice you know and consent and the senate generally just consented you know they looked at it as we're supposed to advise and consent and you know 90 percent of the time they didn't get into politics they simply reviewed the person and unless there was a huge red flag they just consented because that's how they viewed their role and they viewed their role like, well, we're going to do this when, you know, if I'm a Republican senator, I'm going to do this when the Republicans, you know, when the Democrats are in power. And I expect the Democrats to do the same thing when my Republican president is in power. Mm-hmm. So it's it's always been political in that sense. You just haven't had, uh, you know, the tortured um, hearings and... You know, the conduct that we've seen probably since Justice Thomas's hearings. and That Bork, that was before Thomas. Yeah, I forgot that Bork was before Thomas. Yep, that was another difficult one, mm-hmm. for sure. You know, it's, it's my understanding that um, Justice Robert Bork was the last one to directly answer questions posed to him by the Senate committees. I may be mistaken there, but since that time, and and since he was not confirmed, you know, folks took uh, a long, hard look at that and walked away with the fact that, or the the, the opinion that, okay, from here on on forward, we are not going to answer questions. And so, like you just said, Kelly, it's these hearings are tortured as these people fall all over themselves not to answer questions, to fall back on well, circumstances may be different when I'm in front of the court, or you know, I will respect the the precedent set out before, set out by previous courts. Right, so, but there's it, always exceptions, and they always carve out like exceptions. Mm-hmm. And and justices do evolve, and sometimes sure. they don't turn out to be who the president expects them to be. Often, when a president is asked, you know, about their greatest accomplishments or their greatest disappointments, especially when it comes to disappointments, they'll say, "My nomination of X or Y," you know, because he didn't. And it's usually he didn't turn out to be who I thought he was. Because once once they go on the court, they can do obviously they they can evolve and you know, they're completely independent. And it's a lifetime appointment. So Mm -hmm. it is a lifetime appointment, although they can be impeached, they can be impeached. And that would be the consequence in this situation. If it was found out to have been a justice, I would suggest that they would they would and should be impeached. But that would become political as well. You know, for example, if it was a Democratic justice, 
and he or she released the opinion, you would, instead of people just viewing it probably as they should, right, which is this is an egregious breach of trust, this is a breach of their contractual obligation, this shows that the person lacks the demeanor, judicial demeanor uh, is very important, and they, they lack the ability to discern appropriate and ethical conduct, we should impeach them. We would end up in a, a big political kerfuffle, right? And the same thing if it was a Republican. I think it's more likely, you know, if I were to to guess, I I feel very confident that it was a, um, you know, a pro-choice clerk or member of the court. It doesn't benefit pro-life people at all to release this opinion. That's what I, I would guess. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Kelly, what is the process for impeaching a Supreme Court justice? Well, it would be, you know, the Senate would take some kind of action and I'm not sure of like technically what they do, but they would file, I think, articles of impeachment just like they would with the president, right? And um, you know, list the the violations, uh, and then the the judge would come before the court. It's very rare, but I know a federal district court judge in Florida was impeached. It can happen, mm-hmm. uh, but you know that's what would happen. I think articles of impeachment would be filed in the Senate, and then, you know, hearings would be set, and it would proceed in that manner. And they could be subject to criminal liability as well. For example, if it was a clerk, I would think the the consequences would be termination and some kind of criminal action for the theft of government property. Disbarment, maybe? I don't know. See, the, the, the thing is, you really get into politics. That's the problem is nobody can view this independently, right? Like we should. We shouldn't be worrying about what it was about, like what the subject matter was. That shouldn't matter. The conduct should matter. Like we should we shouldn't even worry about what the decision was about. Just that there was this draft decision. Let's forget about what the topic was. It's just like when you charge someone with grand larceny, you don't worry about what they were stealing, right? It's just that they committed a theft. You have to put on some evidence as to the value of the property and that the person, you know, had the intent to permanently deprive. But the issue is is that they were stealing. <laughs> and and so the issue should be the same here. We shouldn't be worrying about the topic of the decision. The point is that this document, this draft document, was, you know, kind of smuggled out of the Supreme Court. I'm assuming it was a physical copy because the electronic fingerprint and trail. Yeah, that's right. I think mm-hmm. would be too strong. Yeah, yeah. The, it, it was scanned, obviously. There's a staple marks on the scan. So I think oh, it really? was a hard copy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Kelly, I have a question for you. When it comes to the justices, you know, we've seen in recent years well, at least I have seen, it may have happened previously, but there have been justices who have become ensnared in political debate. And I think of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was critical of Trump. And I think of most recently, although it's not the the justice himself, uh, Clarence Thomas, it's his wife, and her activities that have been uh, hyper-political. So the questions have been asked, you know, is he somehow involved in that? So my question is, is there a code of conduct by which the justices are required to conduct themselves, or are they just so-called deeply held institutional norms? Do those things exist? And then sort of what is what are your thoughts on what that does to the system when our justices become 
politically active or politically um, vocal. So there is, to answer the first part of your question, there is an ABA model rules of, of, of judicial conduct. And in addition, the federal court system, if you go to uscourts.gov, there is a code of conduct for judicial employees that applies. So you have two different layers that would, you know, apply in these situations. And there's a duty of confidentiality that's outlined in the U.S. Courts Code of Judicial Conduct. So, and I don't think that the model code of judicial conduct gets into that because really that's not concerned about internal documents and it's concerned about how a judge conducts him or herself on the bench. And it does get into politics. You are supposed to avoid political situations. In the code of conduct um, under the U.S. courts, they specifically say a judicial employee should never disclose any confidential information received in the course of official duties. A formal judicial employee should observe the same restriction on disclosure of confidential information that applies to a current judicial employee. And it goes on from there. Deliberation is considered confidential information. Yes, okay. yes. And, and confidential information also would be defined in the NDA, in the non-disclosure agreement that they, you know, that, that the employee signed. And also a big part of the Code of Judicial Con- Conduct is a judicial employee should refrain from inappropriate political activity. And you will see that consistently in codes of conduct related to judges. Uh, but it does not restrict a spouse or a partner. Right. I think we've answered my my third question was what could happen to the person or persons responsible for this. I think we've answered that question unless you have anything more to add, Kelly. No, I, I think criminal liability, theft of government property, termination of employment. And for a judge, the termination would have to go through an, an impeachment proceeding. Okay. I also had a question about the security measures in place at courts especially the Supreme Court. Now, I've worked for the federal government. I've worked on uh, Navy bases, secure facilities. So I know what we did and the requirements and restrictions we followed. What do they have at the Supreme Court? Can they take the hard copy documents home? Is there a secure net? How much is actually printed versus electronically read? And what are the disposal measures of printed material there? Do you know that? I don't know that. I think it's probably pretty secret. I just know that they sign non-disclosure agreements, uh, that the terms and conditions aren't publicly available. I wasn't able to find them. I don't think most folks know what they are. You know, so I, but I would, I would imagine any physical documents are going to be shredded. And I would also imagine that nothing can be removed from the facility. Although I think for judges, I can't imagine a Supreme Court judge couldn't take home documents uh, to work on. That's when you get into who could have could a judge have taken home documents to read mm-hmm. or review and then they're one of their kids or a cleaning lady or an employee of mm-hmm. their home a significant have, other you just don't know or they could have mm-hmm. left it in their in their satchel or their briefcase and somebody could have opened it and taken it out i mm-hmm. but that's getting that's pretty tenuous but it could have happened you know and in, in the in the age of covid with all of the remote work i mean the supreme court worked remotely for a significant period of time which meant by definition these materials had to be in the homes of justices and there had to be a they had to have access to their to their secret government networks at home 
um, because that's where people were for months and months and months. Not just the justices, but all of their support staff. Right. So, Although, um, you know, I don't and, think that's what happened here because okay. I, think, I think we think that it was when they were back at the Supreme Court working and somebody physically removed a copy. I think we do know that. Mm-hmm. My sense is that they'll find out who did it in this day and age of whatever, tracing the printing or sign-in sheets or whatever. They'll find some the person who did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it'll become this big political controversy because whatever side this person is on, folks are going to take their side. For example, if they're a Republican and pro-life and put this out, You know, all the Republicans are going to want to protect them. And if it's a Democrat, which is more likely and a pro-choice individual, then people are going to be very sympathetic. Buckle your seatbelts is all I can say. It's going to be bad. Yeah, it's not over yet. Just to uh, put uh, yet another layer of icing on this cake, it really deeply disturbs me because, again, this was the branch of government that we were supposed to have the greatest confidence in. We've never seen this before. At least I don't think we've seen it before. We haven't, although, I mean, there have been leaks in the past, um, for sure, going back like to the 1800s. I think there was, because I did a little research, there was... And the outcome of a case was reported by the New York Tri- Tribune like 10 days before the decision came out. Um, that was in the mid-1800s. I think in 1919, mm-hmm. a railroad-related decision was released. Not a draft, but the actual decision. It was released to like a, a clerk's friends or something, and it actually resulted in, in, in indictments. And then Roe v. Wade in 1973 uh, was leaked to to Time magazine, but just hours, just hours before the opinion was published. So there have been been cases where final decisions, not drafts, have been leaked. And the clerk that did leak Roe v. Wade just a few hours beforehand did own up to it and was not fired. Wow. which, Which is funny because... Justice Berger had this, what he called the 22nd rule. Uh, Any clerk caught talking to the press would be fired in 20 seconds. Wow. So. And so what was the clerk's motivation for leaking it? You know, I never read that. I never did read the motivation. I guess he confided in a law school acquaintance who also was a staff reporter for the time, for Time magazine. So... Uh, I mean, that's not really confiding. You know Mm -hmm. if you go Mm -hmm. to somebody that's a member of the press what they're going to do with that. What a scoop. Right. (laughs) Wow, this topic really brings out the best in us, huh? We thought it was off the record. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just giving you this on background, okay? (laughs) So, but I think, I guess, you know, a few hours people weren't, you know, that upset by it. Mm -hmm. So, and which I can understand it. I don't think it's at all similar to our current situation. No. Well, Kelly, I was reading the leaked draft, which is on Politico, I think. And with my background in writing, the draft struck me as a really early draft because it seemed unrefined and kind of severe. I'm assuming it was an early draft of a decision, if not the first draft, because, you know, they write decisions after they hear the arguments. And then the decisions get passed around and the justices all help refine it and revise it. Right. So the, right. so they become more and more refined as the justices read, review, and revise them. And this 
document was definitely not there yet. It was awkward, almost stream of consciousness in places, and Supreme Court decisions, I've always enjoyed reading them because they're so clear and beautiful prose and well thought out. Right, right. It was an early draft, for sure. Yeah, and I, I think we all know when we write, the big thing is get started, right? If you try to sit and write something and it, have it be perfect, you're never even going to get started, right? It's pure torture. I used to tell my students, I'd give them the homework tonight, go home and write a bad first draft. That's your yeah. homework. Just get a couple paragraphs down, just get started. And so I think that's what they do in the Supreme Court. They really just get started, write something out just off the top of the head, get it out there, get it circulated. And then in some ways, it's a negotiation because you want to, as a justice, get other justices to support your opinion, to support your legal theory. And so you circulate and they revise and they say, I can't agree to this. I don't think this citation is correct. And and in some ways, it's being revised, it's being reviewed constantly. But some of it is, we don't want this in. We don't mm-hmm. agree with this. Mm-hmm. We don't. And you kind of come to an understanding. And that's how you reach a majority opinion. And then, of course, you've got your dissenters who they may try to come together with one person writing the dissent and the same process will occur. And if you have tr- if, if you have trouble agreeing on a legal theory, you might have a majority opinion with concurring opinions that maybe are based upon a slightly different precedent or view of the case. And the same thing with dissents. You could have multiple dissents because folks can't come together on the reason or the basis of the dissent. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. It makes all the sense in the world just because we all have written and we all are writers, but I guess I didn't. <laughs> the, the Supreme Court is like the rest of us. You know, they've got to get started, and there's probably some pretty ugly first drafts out there. Um, oh, I'm sure. I just say for the record, I only write <laughs> ugly first drafts. <laughs> Me too. Because so. <laughs> it really frees you. It's very liberating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To sit down and butcher mm-hmm. your first draft. Now you right. have yeah. you have traction, someplace to go mm-hmm. from there. Yeah, when I learned that technique, it changed my life. I'm not kidding. Well, yeah, it just takes it just takes practice. I was always so reluctant to just, you know, like I really thought it has to be perfect. And now, you know, working and having to to write and review contracts and respond to emails, I just do it. And then it's much easier, like and it's much quicker. You, you just get it down, and then you just read it again and and make it better and but it just definitely less, less angst. Yeah. Yeah, so I was just going to say less anxiety producing where you're sitting staring at a screen going oh what do I write it's exactly it must be yeah. perfect and wonderful mm-hmm. the first draft mm-hmm. yeah in fact when I was teaching when a student turned in the, the final version of the paper I always asked for all their earlier drafts as well as well as outlines and notes and wow Martin, um, that's a lot because uh, a lot of reading <laughs> I did review it because I wanted them to be comfortable with multiple drafts That's the process. Speaking of the process, Kelly, in my reading, I found out that justices can and do swing their votes as the process unfolds. Sure. Yeah, I think opinions change. You can definitely evolve as you review case law, as you review precedent, as you review the specific facts of the case. And your opinion can change. Do I think that Justice Alito's opinion ultimate final decision is going to change? Probably not, but it could. 
I mean, you could have a draft and, and it could completely change or it could change to the other position. I don't think that's likely, but yes, it happens. A good example is the Affordable Care Act, where I think Justice Roberts was on one side and then at the very end switched and became that swing vote. He wrote he the sure majority did. opinion. So you mm-hmm. just don't know. My feeling is it'll be interesting to see the opinion. I think it's going to be very narrow. I think it's going to be based on the specific facts of the case. Which, oh, by the way, the draft is not those things now. Right, Kelly? Right. And I haven't yeah. spent a lot of time reading the draft mm-hmm. because I just feel like, why am I going to read a draft mm-hmm. that is, is in, in no way is going to reflect that's interesting. That's it's only 98 pages, Kelly. Yeah, I like that, yeah. Uh-huh. I, I would read a page and fall asleep, mm, honestly. Mm. Uh, hm. I just, I didn't even bother with it. I'm like, okay, let's just wait and see what happens here, because mm-hmm. it's a draft. That's all it hm. is. That's the advice going forward here. Let's just wait and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, though, ultimately, it's very disappointing. Judges and clerks, and I don't mean to say it's a clerk. It could be an employee, but whomever it is, This is somebody that the justices have put their faith and trust in, and we all have, right? And they violated it, and that's just a terrible thing, and there's no reason for it. It's Um, very disappointing. So on an ethical level, it's quite wrong. And then in addition, they've signed a contract. I'm confident whoever this is signed a confidentiality agreement. And so, you know, they've breached that, and there will be consequences for that as well. So somebody felt strongly enough about this for whatever reason to set themselves up for some serious consequences. It sure looks that way. And I can't imagine it being anybody but, you know, a pro-choice person who thought, let's get this out there. People will be outraged and maybe that will bring the court back to the middle or make them change their mind or get the Democrats galvanized behind an issue because things aren't looking so great for the Democrats right now. I, I don't know. I, I, those are the kind of things I'm thinking. I can't think of how the Republicans benefit by, and I'm thinking of this person as a political actor, as a political animal, right? So I can't think of how a Republican, if I'm a Republican, how does that help me? I don't, I don't think it does. So that's why I feel like it's probably not a Republican actor. Well, using the old axiom, who's benefiting without appearing to benefit, I found a, an article in, in Intelligencer, which has five theories, which covers both folks on the left and the right. And I'll mm-hmm. post a link to that because yeah. it's fascinating. Oh, wow. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's always money. Could just be a simple payoff. Give it, you know, like if you can produce this draft, I'll pay you X, but... I kind of don't think that's what's going on here. No, I think it's more political. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the money's going to be traceable, and you've got an issue if all of a sudden there's a big deposit. And I can't see a political reporter coming with a briefcase of cash or something. That just doesn't make sense. <laughs> oh, this is Washington we're talking about, Kelly. Now, you know. That's true. <laughs> what do they say? Reality is stranger than fiction? Exactly. I, I hear what you just said, Kelly. However, you know, I have read that there's a, a very different approach to this leak in that it was leaked by someone who is pro-life in an effort to pin those justices to their initial opinions early and prevent 
that back and forth and that movement on an issue that should happen in confidentiality within the court and uh, pin them down, publicly identify who they are and where they stand so that the decision goes through because it is such an explosive topic. This has been a, a now a long settled matter of American law and it would be thrown open to all manner of public outcomes across our country. You see every state now scrambling to kind of craft its own approach to what they think this may end up being. So Yeah, no, I mean, that that could be it. So you're saying like they're worried that the more conservative justices are going to move off their position or moderate. Correct. They want to they want to like get Mm -hmm. it out there, pin them down, lock them down. Yeah. Okay. Well, everyone, I think, agrees that the tone of this draft is is remarkably extreme, but we haven't seen something lately that would completely eradicate what has been a constitutionally based right for people. It's not often in American history that you give people a right through, you know, a government decision, a court decision, and then you take it away. That's going to cause some fur to fly, as they used to say. Yes, if that's what happens. Right, Um, if that's what happens. It'll be interesting Mm -hmm. to see what the decision is, what its basis is, because stare decisis is a doctrine, you know, that courts adhere to precedent in making their decisions, but precedent does get overruled. It happens, and it has happened Mm -hmm. over time, consistently. So it happens based on developments in law, developments in medicine in this case. Mm -hmm. It could be developments in technology, depending upon, you know, the facts of a case. So we have to see what they do here and ultimately where they land. And of course, the reasoning and how broad the decision is. Will it be an an, an absolute reversal of of Roe v. Wade? I, I don't know. It may be. I think that for any employer, you've always had the risk of in insiders getting a hold of your confidential information and doing something inappropriate with it. And that's what's happened here. So Mm -hmm. you want to have appropriate policies and procedures in place, limit access to confidential information and sensitive information to reduce the risk of disclosure, as well as training. But those general tenets apply, but don't apply to the Supreme Court. This select group of people, and it's like only like 50 people that could have done this. I mean, they all know that. They know what's at stake. They just just Mm -hmm. know better. Yeah, that's the most surprising and disturbing part of this story, I think, because it's a very select group. I just believe they absolutely know better. They know it was a breach of trust. They know it was a contractual breach, and they went ahead anyways. But if there's any topic that would bring out that kind of action on an individual, a compulsion to set aside their professional requirements, their personal norms, this would be the topic. Right. That almost gets into another ethical issue. Like, does the topic make it okay to engage in bad behavior? I don't know. Tough, tough, tough. That's another topic for another day. Another topic. Can we treat all things theoretical? That is a good question. So anything else? Wow. Okay, you guys, this is a challenging one. I'm worn out. Kelly, I just want to say, you have taught me so much today, and I want to thank you for that. Oh, okay. Um, no, really. <laughs> no really. Yeah, I mean, no problem. It, it yeah. just, it's fascinating to I see agree with that. more into this, because it is so easy to get wrapped up in the political hyperbole on both sides. It um, is. And I don't, like most of my friends are very, very liberal. My husband is really conservative, and... I just sort of, I think from practicing law, I'm just sort of like, okay, let's just wait and see what they do here. Let's not get all worked up about it. Let's just wait and see where they land. 
I do think we could add, Marna, I could send to you this evening, you know, like I could send the link for the uscourts.gov. I think that might be good and have the code of conduct for judicial employees that yes. you can look at. I made a note, definitely. And, and I can, you know, we, I can send some links for the ABA model rules of professional conduct and code of judicial conduct. So folks, if they want to look at those, they can. That'd be a wonderful addition. What an interesting conversation today. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, mm-hmm. Kelly. And let's keep this fascinating conversation going. Send us an email, inbox at ethicsandetiquette.com, comment on Instagram at Ethics Etiquette, or our Facebook page, Ethics and Etiquette. Tell your friends and family about Ethics and Etiquette. Subscribe and leave a positive review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman and Mike Derrick, I'm Marna Ashburn, and this is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas. New episodes are posted on the first and third Wednesdays of every month. See you next time.